Welcome back to Expert Instruction, the Teach by Design podcast, where we dive deeper into the research surrounding student behavior by talking with the people implementing these practices, where they work, and with the students they support. I'm Megan Cave. Hello, hello. I'm so stoked for this episode. Do you want to know why? Nobody asked, but I'm going to tell you why. It's two reasons. The first one is we have a co-host, people. There's another person in this room. I'm not by myself. I want to introduce you guys to my colleague and my friend, Nadia Sampson. I've been thinking about adding a co-host to this podcast for a long time, actually, and mostly because I think it would be fun. It gets a little lonely in here sometimes, but also because everybody has their own background and experiences in this educational realm. I wanted to add someone to these conversations who is a veteran in this field, someone who has watched how PBIS as a framework has evolved over time, and someone who has a real sense of humor about themselves because we gotta laugh sometimes, right? Nad is all of those things and so much more, and I'm really excited for all of you to get her, to know her better. I'm thrilled that she agreed to be a part of this thing in the first place. <laughs> thank you, yes. Megan. What yes. an introduction. Yes, so- thanks for being here. I'm excited to be here. Yes. Um, This is quite an opportunity, I think. I've uh, really enjoyed the podcast, and now I get to be a part of them. So here we go. Uh, Just a quick note about who I am, what I've been doing. I've been working at the University of Oregon for about 25 years. I've worked in educational and community supports or um, PBS applications for about 20 of those years. I've had the opportunity to work on tier three grants, tier two grants. I do training. Right now, I'm working half-time on a grant um, for check-in, check-out, and I'm also working back with PBS apps on training. So um, I've been around the block a little bit. You have. (laughs) You've been in schools. You've done sets. You've done it all. So I'm, I'm glad that you're here and a part of these things on the reg. As am I. Another really big deal about this episode is the topic itself. We have been listening to the conversations around us, both on social media and in person, among our friends and our colleagues. And guys, there's something that's happening in schools and classrooms right now. And it all just boils down to how everything feels more escalated now than it did in the past. Teachers are burning out quickly. They're leaving the profession and they're starting to name student behavior and the lack of disciplinary response to it as a primary reason for their departure. So instead of leaving all of that to just spiral and spin out on Twitter, we wanted to give intentional space here to discuss real solutions to the issue. Today, we're going to kick things off with the first of our two-part series. Two parts. There, you get two episodes, guys. This is the first. Exploring the topic of de-escalation. So joining us today are Dr. Kathleen Strickland-Cohen and Alex Newson. Mm-hmm. Kathleen is a colleague and a dear friend. And up until recently, her office was not so far away from ours. She recently left the University of Oregon and is now an assistant professor in the Department of Special Education at the University of Utah. She's also a doctoral level board certified behavior analyst. Kathleen has an extensive background in special education and PBIS application in schools. And she's a researcher, a teacher, a trainer, and truly a stellar human being. Alex, who we're just getting to know, Mm -hmm. Alex Newson is a doctoral student in special education here at the University of Oregon. She is a recipient Mm -hmm. of Project Co-Lead, which is a leadership grant focusing on autism, evidence-based practices, diversity, and collaboration across universities. Prior to all of this, 
Alex taught in both private and public school settings throughout the Pacific Northwest as a certified special educator and educational assistant. She brings so much wisdom and experience to this whole conversation. So we're really glad to have her here. Yeah, we were so lucky to have a great conversation with the two of them yesterday. And Alex, along with Kathleen and their colleagues, Catherine Meyer, Robert Putnam, Laura Kern, Brian Meyer, and Amy Flamini have all just published a practice brief for the Center on PBIS called Strategies for De-Escalating Student Behavior in the Classroom. You don't have to write that down. It's written down for you and linked in the description, so check it out. We have been waiting for this brief to be here, and now it's actually out. We can start talking about it in real life. I know that you guys have questions about how to de-escalate those behaviors happening in your rooms, and so do we, honestly. So we're going to take our time with this conversation. In the first episode, we're starting off by talking about those tier one, school-wide, classroom-wide, all-kid prevention strategies, the things that you can do up front to keep those behaviors from escalating in the first place. We're covering all the basics. What is de-escalation? How do your existing systems and practices support your efforts to create and maintain calm? How can we expand those existing systems to meet the emerging needs right now? And finally, by the end of our chat, you'll hear from Kathleen and Alex what they think are the top three to five things you can do to make this year feel more successful in your classroom than last year. Well, Alex and Kathleen, we're so happy to have you guys here with us today. Thank you so much for having us and inviting us to do this. Yeah, it's honestly like this conversation, it feels like it couldn't come at a better time of the year, the beginning of the school year. It feels like there's still some systems and practices that we can build up and improve upon and still get them in place to have an effect for the rest of the year. And uh, just based on some of the conversations we've heard, um, we're at a really good point to start talking about I don't know, escalated behaviors in classrooms and maybe implementing some different strategies and really learning about de-escalation as a school-wide practice or a classroom-wide practice. So maybe we can just start there. So we're talking about de-escalation today. So how, how would you define it within your work? So I think that the term de-escalation is pretty much what it sounds like. So it's the process of preventing challenging situations from getting worse. Yeah. Um, I think that when we think about escalation, which is more of the escalated behavior is what we're talking about when we're talking about escalation or behavioral escalation, that is the what I think of as being the external piece of things, like the externalizing sorts of challenges that students are having. Oftentimes what we're seeing directly, we think of as being escalated behavior. But I think it's also really important to talk about what we mean by regulation or dysregulation. Because oh, okay. that is, that's what I feel is um, more of that internal piece, if you will. So the thing that we're not necessarily seeing, but that is leading to the escalated behavior is this state of a sort of dysregulation. So some people think of it as being that fight, flight, or freeze okay. um, yeah. kind of, you know, kind of response internally. Um, so it's an, it's, re it's a reaction to something that's going on in the environment that is perhaps even trigger triggering something that is a perception that we can't see um, that can cause students to become dysregulated, essentially. Um, so with that fight or flight kind of response that can look like things like being um, 
excessively emotional or aggressive or engaging in unsafe behavior, things like elopement or leaving the classroom or unfortunately, sometimes even mm -hmm. running away from a playground on toward a highway, you know, like things that we think of as being behavioral escalation in that way. Um, it's also important to realize though that for some students, this can also look like the freeze response, which can yeah. just be completely shutting down. Um, I think it's also important to understand that when students are dysregulated, that they are oftentimes having a hard time taking in information. Um, so, you know, thinking about some of our ways that we address this kind of behavior, which is seeing adults actually becoming more, um, in, in fact, dysregulated themselves, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> engaging in behavior yeah. such as, you know, becoming what I say, bigger, louder, meaner, you know, so I'm going to, to raise my voice and, uh -huh. and use a lot of words to explain to you why this isn't okay is oftentimes, um, at best, it's sort of a moot point because the student isn't really hearing you. At worst, it's only making the situation worse. It gotcha. is actually further escalating the challenge. So, gotcha. so Alex, would you like to add anything to that? I would just say, Kathleen, I really appreciate that in the paper that we have and in our conversations, we talk not only about de-escalation and regulation of students, but the conversation does not often go through the adults in this space. And we need to remember in PBIS and systems, the adults that set the example, the adults that are, are the places where we do intervention, it's not the students. And so we need to have that conversation around how do we deescalate adults because adults are humans too. And they have things that make them upset during the day. There's things that are happening throughout the school year that can escalate them, whether that be student behavior or the fact they didn't have coffee that morning. There's <laughs> lots of different things that happen. And so we need to talk, bring the conversation, not only focusing on what is happening within the student and the big emotions that they're feeling, but what is the reaction of staff? What is the, how are we looking at the adult behavior as well? Because it's a relationship that happens and either can be a positive fulfilling relationship where we have student teacher relationships that are sustainable and healthy, or it can be that coercive cycle where we're like you were saying, Kathleen, we're trying to one up each other of constantly being more upset. Well, I can be louder than you and I'm stronger yeah. than you. Um, mm -hmm. And we know that those power struggles do not turn out well. Uh, so I'm really appreciative that we we brought that into this space and that you, you spoke about that. Yeah, or you might hear this on another podcast um, because we're having other folks, hopefully they're going to be talking about this, but you might hear them say that um, a dysregulated adult cannot help regulate a child. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah. That's a really so, good point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when we're talking about de-escalation, we're talking about the process of bringing a dysregulated person back to a regulated state. Yes. Great. That's that's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think it's important to define for us as we move forward through our conversation. Do you know, like when in your experience, what kind of um, training do teachers have or experience do they have around the process of de-escalating? behaviors is it is it is it professional development that they get or is it more of like a learn as you go learn it on the job kind of kind of process in my experience it's a little bit of both but when we see uh de-escalation it's usually not explicitly taught like academics are in 
preparation programs. Mm -hmm. We see it naturally embedded here and there in classroom management or relationship building, but it's not something that is explicitly taught to teachers of how to de-escalate students and especially how to de-escalate themselves. Mm. And as we um, look at more professional development around trauma-informed training that is provided to teachers, there is, again, glimpses of that, but it's not explicitly defined. And so in my experience, it's a learn-as-you-go process. I had to learn it by being a teacher in a classroom and having mentors like Dan Courtney in uh, the school that I was at explicitly teach me how to do it and, and how to do it with my staff. Because that was the one thing of I could maybe do it with a child, but how do we de-escalate the special education staff afterward as well to make sure everyone is feeling healthy and whole at the end? Um, and I think a part of it that we often forget, again, is that adult piece that the adults have to be calm and need to come back to baseline to be able to teach effectively. Uh, and when I think about professional development as well, it's often not with the voices of educators Currently, mm -hmm. it may have been educators in the past, but right now we're going through a Say pandemic. It, these teachers yeah. are are struggling because, like I was, I was an emergency certified teacher. I had no idea what was going on. I just knew the basics, but I didn't have the de-escalation strategies. So mm -hmm. I think that's that's part of it. Is we have a new crop of teachers coming in that have less experience, less training. And they're, they don't have the opportunities that some of these teacher preparation or professional development um, have to, to be successful with de-escalation. Mm -hmm. I think that that really leads into um, the next question that um, we wanted to ask, which was, it seems that right now, um, more than a few years ago, that there's a lot more conversation about students and escalated behavior that that students and staff are really struggling with this more than they have in the past, or at least we're talking about it more. Mm -hmm. um, if we read the room, there's a sense that things are just different now. Do you get that sense? What have you seen in classrooms that you visited over the last couple of years? Do you think students are experiencing more dysregulation um, and behavioral escalation or, or not? My answer, I'll, I'll jump in on that one. My answer to that question is yes and no. <laughs> I think, um, so the disruption um, because of COVID, I, I think the disruption in what we thought of as quote unquote normal life um, can be thought of as collective trauma. So, and I actually, I got that term from Alex, who's on here with us, but, but that, that term, uh, it really spoke to me when you said that term, collective trauma, Alex, because I think that that's what we're experiencing. Um, so we know that many students and staff across the whole country were away from the structure and predictability of in-person school for many months, um, some like over a year. Um, and so many staff were trying to be full-time parents while also working a full-time job and educating their students while trying to also be, you know, part-time educator for their own children at home. Um, many of our students, uh, in, in addition to sort of losing that structure that they were used to, um, for many of our students, home is not necessarily a safe or a nurturing environment. Um, so I think that it kind of goes without saying that with students coming back to school or as they've come back to school, yes, we've we've definitely seen more behavioral escalation. Um, I think it only makes sense if you think about the context that that would be the case. 
But I think it's also um, it's also really important to understand that it's not just about student behavior. It's also what I was just saying about staff experiences and behavior and the fact that honestly, um, what I've seen and, and even had some of uh, the, the educators that I work with tell me is that there's just this sort of lower threshold of tolerance yes. for any kind of stress inducing event. Yeah, you know? we're already um, maxed out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So adults themselves aren't necessarily feeling very regulated at this point. Right. Um, and so trying to address students who are also coming in with um, additional sort of issues that they may have not had prior to the pandemic is, is a real challenge. Um, if you don't mind, I want to really quickly circle back to the question right before this one. Yeah, sure. Because uh, I just it. wanted to jump in there and say too, along with what Alex was saying, I really appreciate Alex, what you were talking about in terms of training as a special educator, I just want to make the point that less than a third of teacher prep programs for general educators even have instruction related to classroom management. So say that again. Uh, yeah. Say it <laughs> so, again for the yeah, people so in the back of the room. Less than a third of our teacher prep programs for general educators have courses that are focused on classroom management. Incredible. So, you know, we're, we're talking about something that, you know, talk about working or getting training on the job, you know, yes. I mean, um, a lot of our general educators come to schools completely unprepared for, for these types of, of challenges. Um, and so their response to these things aren't necessarily what we think of as being evidence-based practices <laughs> for supporting students who are experiencing, you know, dysregulation. Mm -hmm. Well, and I do think too that there's this, I don't know, lately I've been reading a whole lot about um, building school-wide community and um, and so there's this, I don't know, I think something that you were saying, Alex, that sounded good, um, which was that you heard that you, you received some real mentorship from mm -hmm. someone within your building. Um, per, maybe this was, a, um, a more veteran, um, educator. Maybe it was just a peer that, you know, someone mm -hmm. that had been there for a year or two longer than you. Um, but I do think that there's value in listening to the experiences of other teachers. Um, and, um, especially if you're new and, um, I think in any, any profession that you have, you show up and you're just like thrown into it, hoping for the best. And, um, and I think if you can really find those mentors within your building, they can, they can do a good job of shepherding you through the process and what it, what it is like for them to, to manage their classrooms, especially if, if you can find a classroom that you're like, that's what I want in my mm -hmm. room. <laughs> How do you do that? And asking those questions. But to your point too, Kathleen, there's really those evidence-based practices, I think, that that really work. They're proven to work. And um, and there's a whole body of research that that can support that. And it's important for, for everyone to have access to that level of training also. I yeah. think it's interesting too that we can, I think we can easily point back to now, well, there was COVID, there's this gap that has happened in terms of instruction for students or they're coming to the table, they're coming to school with, um, with, a, with a gap in terms of how to do school, how to do life. And yet we can, I think a lot of educators, educators point to that. They know that's there. We have something to say. We know why that there's probably more students struggling with this. And yet 
you, but both of you, I think said at some point, our tolerance, educators' tolerance for that, because they too have experienced the collective trauma, are are still struggling with that. Even having a sense of why things might look different, it's still really challenging um, to actually be able to address it in a way that is sensitive to the, the whole idea of what's happening for students um, internally and for ourselves as educators. So. Yeah, and I think some of the staff that we, because Alex and I um, spent some time out in local districts last year, and one of the things that we were hearing even from the staff was that sort of recognition, because there would be this discussion of how everything's worse, worse, worse. Yes. And then almost invariably, there would be like this voice of reason, you know, like quiet voice <laughs> of reason in the room that said, you know, but most of these things that we're talking about were happening before the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and then, you know, like it's kind of this realization that they're having that, oh, you're right. Like we we had many of these, if not all of these challenges. Again, some of them may be a little bit escalated at this point, but, um, you know, also that recognition that they have just less um, in their bucket, if you will, you know, to, to give um, because of everything that they also have been experiencing. And I would also say that COVID has exposed a lot of disparities that have been happening in schools. Mm -hmm. So some of these things have been happening, it's just it hasn't been widely known. Mm -hmm. um, and so teachers, I mean, in my, when I was teaching, we had behaviors every single day, um, but it wasn't well known because we were, you know, students weren't as included as often. And so as we include more students in these spaces, and as we learn more about that community and talk with one another and, and work with one another rather than being in these individual silos. Um, we recognize that some of these things have been happening to certain parts of our school and to make our whole school community better, we need to recognize and acknowledge that and how can we support all students? Um, how can we support all staff in making sure that, that schools are a welcoming and safe space? Um, and when we when we think about the why of things, I want to hesitate because we don't want to be trauma investigators and ask the children, you know, what happened to you, you know, and tell me everything that you know, we want to give them uh, privacy and, and respect, just like we want privacy and respect. So there's big things that happened. I know that there's articles about the millions of children who their parents have passed away, yes. food insecurity, housing insecurity, yes. all of these things that happen outside the school building that come into the school building. Um, because while students are with us and we love them very much while they're in our classrooms, they're outside doing their own thing for most they're of whole the summer. people. Yeah, they're whole, whole people. lives. Yeah. Yeah. So to recognize that and to recognize that because this whole human is experiencing a lot of things and trying to communicate with me in the best way that they know how. Um, and that means sometimes it's through big emotions and big behaviors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said about the siloed piece too, mm -hmm. Alex, because, you know, too often, and it's one of the reasons that um, I have appreciated being able to do this work with you, because I think, you know, too often we think about things like behavioral escalation as being a special education mm -hmm. issue, like erroneous belief that this is something that, you know, is hap it happens in, in different contexts with different quote unquote types of students, you know, and, and don't really take into account the fact that this is something that we're all experiencing. This is something that all students can experience. It's something that because all students experience that all educators need to be able to address. 
So some of our listeners, and I think what what you're starting to touch upon is some of those tier one strategies. Some of our listeners, some of the folks that will be listening to this are implementing PBIS or MTSS. And um, there are parts of the tier one strategies that I think provide a good start for that foundation for supported behavior. And I think it goes to what you're saying is that everyone can benefit from from having strategies in place that help us get back to right you know regulated behavior but um can you talk about some of the strategies that you think schools have already in place that may support that work yeah absolutely so i think that um well first of all i think that this is just my word but a sort of a cornerstone of pbis is this idea of creating safe and inclusive environments so yes. that's kind of where we're beginning, you know, and part of that is really thinking about as a as a staff um, together, you know, what are those behavioral expectations that we want to clearly define for our students? How can we include our students within that process and, and also include their values as well? But but clearly defining, explicitly teaching, and regular regularly reinforcing um, <laughs> those behavioral expectations within and across the school and classroom environments. I think that that's huge. It's a great way to increase predictability in the environment, um, providing supporting, um, supportive and predictable environments helps to promote that self-regulation and prevent dysregulation. Um, so I don't really think that it can be overstated, the importance of that sort of building of predictability within the environment, having those consistent routines within the school, within the classroom, people knowing what to expect, not only students knowing what to expect, but staff knowing what to expect on a daily basis when they come into school. Um, I think that also providing, not only acknowledging pro-social behavior, but also redirecting and reteaching when behavioral errors occur. I love the term behavioral errors. Because, you know, think instead of thinking about like the behavior, right, that like the, the kid is the behavior in a sense. No, we're talking about, oh, you must have forgotten. Like that's almost <laughs> always the way that I approach a challenging behavior. You know, like, oh, you must have forgotten. We we do this. Remember, we've been working on this. And, you know, maybe the student didn't really forget, but that's how I approach yeah. it. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, enter you with the assumption of, yeah. oh, yeah. Right. Like, you yeah. know, best case scenario assumption, like you just forgot what we were doing here. So, um, you know, thinking about behavioral errors in the same way that we think about academic errors that we need to just redirect and reteach. Um, so rather than relying on those sort of punitive or exclusionary <laughs> discipline practices, yeah. really focusing more on that reteaching piece. Um, and it's a heck of a whole lot easier to reteach when you've taught in the first place. <laughs> so, so maybe start that. there maybe yeah, start there. Exactly. yeah yeah it's like this is how we do business this yeah. is how we do business and a lot of how we do business actually those strategies that you're talking about would address a lot of the needs of students and staff around right. being able to come to to school or be in school in a way that is more regulated yeah and less escalated you know the way i think about tier one too we, we, we've talked about this a lot um, with staff in going into schools over the last year. But, um, you know, this idea that as things change, think about your triangle. Think about how tier one might need to shift. Mm -hmm. Because if the whole environment has shifted, 
yes. then thinking about the kinds of struggles that staff and teacher or sorry, staff and students are having very proactively, does that shift what we're doing at tier one a little bit? Right. Yeah, we were talking earlier, um, Kathleen, about about that idea of um, expanding the notion of what tier one strategies might be now um, and that there could be some strategies that we can throw in to teach everybody at this point that I was in a meeting recently where I heard a colleague say that if our students showed up with some, if many, let's say many of our students showed up this year with uh, a gap in their academic skill set, we wouldn't just immediately refer these students to individualized academic supports. Exactly. We would actually expand our curriculum to meet the emerging need. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that we can think of um, of behavior in this way too, that we can think that we have these these um, pretty typical tier one school-wide practices. And then we also have these, these targeted interventions maybe, or targeted strategies that we might have in place um, during more typical years that we would, we would help, you know, certain specific students with those, you know, gaps. But we've got lots of kids um, that are showing up with some gaps in their, um, in their coping strategies. And so maybe we should be thinking about how to expand those um, those tier one strategies to meet the emerging need of our students. So in what ways do you think that we could we could start to think about that? We I think that when we talk about behavior and academics, all of that is skills. Yes. So when teachers get overwhelmed about teaching social emotional learning or teaching de-escalation it's all skills that we are teaching and teachers know how to teach a skill yeah teachers know how to differentiate instruction teachers know that if a student doesn't understand a fraction we don't throw the whole board at them and say figure it out mm -hmm. we figure out a new way to explain it a different example a non-example we model it with them we give them a break to give them a brain break if it's too heavy. So all of these are skills that can be taught and that students are capable of doing. So we wanna presume competence when we talk with students, presume that they can do the thing. And one thing in the paper that we really focus on is the idea of co-regulation and, and doing that with students. And what co-regulation is, for those who don't know, is it's assisting the student in the process of regulating their emotions by expressing empathy, acknowledging and labeling their emotions, modeling that desired behavior, mm -hmm. and providing positive reinforcement for following the expectations. Mm -hmm. It's what we see with parents and young children. When a, when a young toddler shows a big behavior, you know, yelling at that child and wagging your finger doesn't do anything, but getting down on their level and saying, oh, but Alex, sometimes it just feels nice. Yes, <laughs> it feels comforting. I mean, I do this with my partner of like, I'm really mad right now. I a cookie. Yelling um, feels good sometimes. Yes. And so what we but want- But you're to, right. It does not solve the problem. No. What no. we want to do is we want to try to have empower educators to be able to co-regulate with students. So they're building connections over just pure compliance, that they're creating consent in the process rather than forcing decisions, mm -hmm. bringing that choice and promoting choice instead of making it making children do what we want to do because we want them to do it. Yeah. Um, so we when I think about tier one, I often have heard, 
well, that's a tier one kid or that's a tier three kid. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. those things. that's heavy quotations. Yes. Heavy. Quotations. heavy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to think about the tiers of the pyramid as nesting bowls that all students fill in on, and are in that tier one strategy. So reframing our mindset, then when we think about tier one, we're thinking about all students. Yeah, it goes from the bottom of the of yes. the triangle all the way to the tip of the yes. triangle. That green section goes all, it's a whole yeah. triangle. It's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It's not just the 80% of kids that we see in that mm-hmm. beautiful, you know, green, yellow, red triangle. Yeah. It is all students. Yeah. And so what can we do as a team to make sure that all students feel safe, welcome? Just like Kathleen was saying, it's a cornerstone of PBIS. How can we make sure that students feel safe? And one of those ways is to think about that co-regulation piece. All students and all staff will become dysregulated during the school day. That's one of the only expectations that I have during the school day. <laughs> it's for certain someone's going to get mad. Someone's going to get upset. Yeah. And so what can we do to prepare, like prepare and be preventative about that? Making sure we're building those relationships and do those co-regulation strategies. Explicitly teach in each setting what it looks like to be regulated, what that looks like to self-regulate. It's different in the cafeteria versus math. You know, in the cafeteria, taking a deep breath may work, but maybe you need to move your body a little bit. Maybe you need to um, talk to an adult. So thinking about those specific things and being really intentional about what we are doing at that tier one. Are we intentionally thinking about all students? Are we intentionally thinking about all staff? It should not be an afterthought that students with disabilities are included in this process. Mm -hmm. It should be something that is at the forefront of our minds. And it's not just students with disabilities or students at tier three who are experiencing dysregulation. It is all students and all all staff have opportunities to experience that. It matters what we do once they experience it. Are we allowing them to feel affirmed, safe, and welcome? Or are we making them feel punished, horrible about themselves and excluded? Mm. That's that's the key point there. I wonder too, I I don't, I hear from a lot of educators um, that, that schools or teams are really feeling like they have to go back to the drawing board in terms of their tier one, or they need to kind of start over. Um, And as we're talking about expanding tier one to really encompass all students, again, with that students are coming in, maybe looking a little bit different or having different behaviors. There are things we've seen before, but um, we're experiencing them in a different way as adults. If we look at that more as an opportunity to take our tier one and say, you know what, we do need to go back to the, not to the drawing board, but we need to go back a little bit and rework our tier one. And let's take this opportunity to do that rather than seeing it as, oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. And we're, (laughs) we're just, everything's a mess. I think that's a hard reframe right now. um, Just because people are struggling, adults, children, students are struggling and, and we are, um, there's so much going on, but um, I want to start thinking about that in a, in a new way of saying there's an opportunity here to do tier one um, a little bit differently um, in terms of bringing, expanding it yeah. in a sense, in the way that we probably originally designed it, but now really having to look at it in a little bit of a different way. So. And I don't think that it's, I don't think that these things are bad to teach to everybody, right? Like right. these are these are great skills to teach and to just, even if it's just to say that you've done it so that when something happens, when someone gets upset, 
you can point back and be like, oh, now I can reteach, right? It's back to what you were saying, mm -hmm. Kathleen, where mm -hmm. like, if you don't teach it in the first place, then what are we doing? You can't possibly go back and reteach something. So doing that too, teaching these things while people are in a state of calm is like the greatest time to do it, right? Because there is no way that if I'm upset about something that's going on and someone tells me, Megan, you need to calm down. I, there is no way I am calming myself down now. No way. No. So, but if you, if someone were to say like, oh, I see, I see this is happening. Maybe you forgot. I, <laughs> maybe you forgot, but there's some things that we can do right now and like point to those things and maybe have, I don't know. Like, I think that all of this stuff is good right? That like, if you're going to teach one person how to take a break, why not teach everybody how to ask for a break? If you're going to teach one person how to do some deep calming breaths to like help them calm down, teach that to everybody. You know, you can't assume I, at this point, I'm in a place where I cannot assume that anyone ever taught you how to do this thing because we're all in a weird spot. So may as well just teach it to everybody because it's good for everybody. All of these skills are good for everyone. So go ahead and teach them, expand it, expand it and make this a classroom-wide, a school-wide practice where everyone gets the same information so that when those behaviors go up, you can be like, oh, remember. <laughs> this is remember. what we do. This is what we do. Remember. As a it's also less stigmatizing language. So yeah. if a student's having a breakdown in the middle of the hallway, Yes. We know as a classroom culture, as a school culture, mm -hmm. that everybody has those moments in the time. Yeah. And when a student mm -hmm. is ready to come back, they're able to be welcomed with more acceptance That's and love. That's such a good point, Alex. Yeah. Like that kid is the kid who yells all the time. No, yeah. we all yell at times in our day. And we all have moments that are hard. And so I think part of it is reducing the exclusion that happens and bringing it back to the inclusiveness that we want to see in spaces of if we all learn the strategies. When I taught the strategies to all my students, my students were able to co-regulate each other. See? They were empowered mm -hmm. to yeah. say, you don't need the adult to do this. Like, <laughs> I know that right now my friend is at a level four on the thermometer. <laughs> a couple deep breaths. Hey, Brian, do you want to take a couple deep breaths with me? And I was like, I'm out of a job and that's the best way it's going to be. You know, because we want... We want that companionship and that friendship. And I was there, of course, to supervise. But yeah, yeah. I think that's empowering that culture of inclusivity rather than just saying, like Kathleen said, and like y'all have said, of it's a special education thing. That's mm -hmm. the certain type of student does this. Let's just make it really aware that we're all going through things. We're all human beings with ranges of emotions and tolerances that depend on sleep, that depend on what we ate, that depend on, you know, lots of different things. And so I think, again, making that an intentional part of your tier one, where everyone is included, creates more inclusive environments where students feel safe to say something before they get to the point where they're super escalated of like, right now, I feel kind of uncomfortable. I don't like what's happening right now, or I'm feeling angry and I would like someone to talk to. It's, it's, it's a preventative strategy, which is what tier one is. Mm -hmm. It's about prevention. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's also really important to point out, because I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm, I think it's really important to point out that when a student or an adult, for that matter, when an individual mm -hmm. is in crisis, this is not the time to teach oh. a strategy. Like this no, is no. not a teachable moment. No. This is a turn things around, keep people safe moment. Um, you know, and we oftentimes 
talk about de-escalation or people think about de-escalation strategies, if you will, um, as what you do when someone is in crisis. And they're already mm-hmm. there. They're, you know, like when they're already there, what do I do? And and that is such a, um, it's such a backwards, honestly, way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Because again, that's not the time to teach. That's not the time you're going to have any success. So that's also not the time that the adult is going to have any success, which leads to people saying things like, oh, well, those things don't work. Well, heck no, they don't work because you didn't use it until the student was <laughs> until in it's full late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so obviously it's not going to work, right? Uh-huh. So this idea of thinking about this from a proactive standpoint, how are we teaching everyone? How are we putting things into someone's repertoire so that we can remind and reteach and you know help someone to remember oh I'm just going to give you a signal when I start to notice that you're becoming agitated and maybe that can be helpful in you remembering what we've just been talking about you know but yeah it's it's so um it's so customary for us to wait until someone is already in that dysregulated or that escalated state yeah. To then start saying, oh, well, I, I'm just supposed to use this strategy now. <laughs> Now's I, a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I it, I bring it back to academics, though, because, again, I feel like teachers have a better understanding of the academics. We don't put a big, hard test in front of a student when they've had no lesson and go, figure it out. Right. 100%. Now you know decimals. Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You teach it in incremental and you practice in low stakes environments and you do, you know, lots of different ways of showing it and you provide lots of it. It it takes a long time to learn a skill, to become fluent, to master that skill, and then think about it generalizing to multiple situations. So when I talk with educators, I bring it back to that academic language because they know Mm -hmm. you don't do that to students. In state testing, children don't just magically know all the answers to those tests. It takes a whole year of instruction for them to be able to have that test even presented in front of them. Mm. So what can we do to mirror that in our behavior skill instruction? And when we think about that in preventative ways, we have to teach, we have to practice, we have to reteach, we need, you know, even when we know that we master it, let's remember it again and try to go back and see if we can do it again in a calm, low stakes environment so that when the big day comes or when something happens, we know like riding a bicycle that we can just do it and, and keep going. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best description of teaching pro-social behavior like academic skills that I've ever heard. That was awesome. Yes, Kathleen. <laughs> Kathleen, you'll be able to listen to this back and like write it all down. <laughs> I'll be able to remember what I said because you know. <laughs> the power of the podcast. <laughs> um, so I think we're at a place now where I'm convinced, right, that I would love to see these kinds of things expanded and taught to my own children in their classrooms. So Talk to the teachers right now who are listening to us. And what are some of the actual strategies, the three to five things that they might be able to do this year in their classrooms that would help them to have a year that feels more successful in terms of behavior uh, than maybe it was last year? Alex, I'm going to let you go first on this one. Okay. Go. go. Um, I have a couple of things, uh, but the main thing that I want to focus on is give yourself grace and space. I watch a lot of teacher candidates and they're doing their 
ding dang hardest. They're working hard. They're working the, like doing their best, but they have this expectation that now that they know the knowledge, they'll be able to implement it with hundred percent fidelity and that they're going to just, it's just going to be easy. And I feel like we need to allow for grace and space. You are doing the best you can with the resources that you have. You're doing the best you can to serve your students in the best way you know how. Mm-hmm. And in space means providing an understanding that we don't know it all and that we're constantly learning. Each day is a new day and that we can get better. And sometimes it's not going to be the greatest day. And then my next thing would be take care of your wellness. You cannot teach well if you are not well. You cannot pour from an empty cup. Um, it's something I'm very, very passionate about is, is teacher teacher wellness and teacher mental health. And so when we talk about all these regulation strategies, they're all great. But if you're not regulated and you're coming in upset and angry and yelling at students, the best way, best laid plans will not happen. So what can you do to make sure that you're taking care of yourself, both mentally and physically? So that you can come into the classroom and feel like it's a safe space for you. So you can make a safe space for students. Students learn when they feel physically and psychologically safe. So make sure that you yourself feel physically and psychologically safe. Um, And then you're going to be able to do the strategies like co-regulation. And you're going to be able to teach in a way where you're present for your students. You're going to be able to listen to their feedback and listen to their voices and incorporate that into your lessons. You're going to be able to think of more about the prevention rather than the reactionary quick judgments that happen. Um, So that's what I tell my teacher candidates when I'm I'm with them. And that's what I wish I would have heard when I was teaching. Mm -hmm. um, There's such high expectations for us all. And it's such a big time. You're teaching during a pandemic wow, good for you. Like I, I'm, I'm in awe of teachers right now and the amount of power and wonderfulness that they are and what they're doing. Um, so I think acknowledging that is really, really important when we, when I'm speaking to educators. Mm-hmm. I, I actually self-care was at the top of my list as well. You know, thinking about taking care of yourself. And I love what you said, Alex, about how you can't really careful of other people if you aren't caring for yourself and if you are not your well yourself. I think that that's, that's critical. Um, I also think what I would say is to focus on, especially early in the year, um, to focus on building those relationships with your students, um, really focusing on that, because I think that that is what you all were talking about. And I know I keep going backwards, but, but what you all were talking about, about this idea of, of shifting you know, tier one and thinking about your tier one strategies, I would hope that that's not just something that we do because a pandemic has occurred. I I hope that that's something that we're doing yearly anyway, and really thinking about, you know, if we're thinking about culturally responsive PBIS, and we're thinking about how do we make this fit our culture, well, every time you get a new group of kiddos in, you've got a new culture, you know? So thinking about, thinking about your students, building those relationships, Thinking about how you might need to, again, like you said, now, not, you know, go back to the drawing board, but how you can shift a little bit those strategies that you already have in place, what you might want to focus on a little more, but really thinking about your tier one, how you're supporting all of your students um, and how that may need to shift slightly uh, based on based on the current group that you have and based on what you're coming to the table with at this moment, you know, how does that look? And I think that um, the other thing that I would say is also just 
modeling those strategies for your students, not just in the context of I'm going to teach a self-regulation strategy and this is what you can do, but really when you come to the table with some issues that day, modeling, what does it look like to talk about this in a very normalizing kind of way and saying like, you know, I, I had a rough morning. Um, we're going to start with 10 minutes of, you know, of what fill in the blank, you know, mm -hmm. so that we can all kind of calm down and get on the same page. Um, but I think that that's, that again, that's normalizing. That helps to show students that it's okay. And we all struggle at times. Um, and this is how we might deal with it. Well, guys, I think we've reached the end of our time, but there's more to come. Yeah, we're going to we're going to um, sort of just pause the conversation for now. And next month, we'll pick it up and we'll talk more about de-escalation. But I think all of the things that we've talked about today have really set the stage because I think here's what I think is that uh, behaviors, not everybody just shows up dysregulated all the time. Maybe they do, but most people don't. And so the idea is that they're like people are coming into your classroom in a state of calm, possibly, and most of them maybe. And then the like the behavior just ramps itself up um, over the course of a certain amount of time. And so at any given point during that ramp up, we have the opportunity to interrupt that process and to de-escalate the behavior. That we're all we're doing is if we take it back to that definition that you gave us earlier, Kathleen which is that all we're trying to do is to get students who are experiencing any level of dysregulation back to a regulated place, even for ourselves, that if we ourselves are feeling that way, that we can interrupt that cycle at any point and model for our students the ways in which they can also bring themselves down or teach each other or talk to each other about how they can they can get themselves back to a regulated place. So all of this is so good at laying that foundational work for what we can do next when things do escalate. But for right now, I think talking about those preventative strategies, those school-wide, classroom-wide, whole school strategies that we can do to establish this is how we do things and this is how we support each other um, is so critical um, when we're talking about the process of maintaining calm and establishing some level of regulation in our classrooms this year. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. And, uh, and we'll be back to talk a little bit more next month about this whole topic. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for focusing on this. Because I, I think you're right, um, Megan and Matt. I think that this is a great time at the beginning of the school yeah. to really think about these strategies. We agree. We agree. Thanks, guys.